0: You will turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 34. That is where we're headed. And I want to ask you to do something with me if you would. I want you to read with me. We're going to go way on back to Isaiah 1:1, and I want you to read this verse with me to help us get started. So it's on the screen behind me. Let's read this together. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, there's a reason that I had you read that. Uh, I wanted us to be reminded today that what we're getting into isn't just some guy's opinion that was around a long, long, long time ago, but God actually spoke. The one who created everything chose a prophet named Isaiah and he spoke clearly to his people and then preserved it knowing that we would be here this morning. Can you believe that? That we would be here this morning Looking at this passage and hearing from him. So, not just any word, right? I want to remind us of where we are in Isaiah. We're actually finishing up a major segment. Uh, Again, we covered this as well, but we've got three big segments here. We've got uh, a segment on judgment that's going to end today with chapter 35. And then from 36 to 39, we have this little parentheses where we're going to get to follow King Hezekiah dealing with Assyria and uh, the emperor Sennacherib. That's going to be amazing just seeing all that interaction, the choices that are made and how Judah responds. And then we're going to finish with, uh, and I know you guys have been eager to get here, uh, a whole big chunk of hope. We've been like, Isn't this, wasn't this series called Holding Out Hope? We need to get there fast. Uh, So starting in chapter 40 and going through the end of the book, we are going to look at some beautiful, beautiful statements about hope. But in chapters 34 and 35, we're going to finish up the end of the prophecies of condemnation. And it's been uh, been pretty heavy, hasn't it? There's been a lot of judgment and difficulties, and this is no... Except, exception. In the words of R.E.M., it's the it's the end of the world as we know it. And we are not fine. Um, chapter 34 is, is literally one of the roughest chapters in all of your Bible, if you haven't read it. And so I want us to be prepared for that. But man, we we need this along with everything else. That God reveals to us. We're going to see a vivid day of vengeance. And then we're going to see a glorious return to Zion. And these beautiful pictures of like a a desolate place. that, That once was, remember, the promised land flowing. A land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's a wasteland in chapter 34. And then in 35, a wasteland is made into this Beautiful, luscious, fruitful garden called Zion. Here's what's hard about this we got both of these chapters going together, and it's really challenging for us, and I would say anybody in the world, to reconcile. Think about the song we just sang You are a good, good father. And then we read chapter 34, and he is blowing things to smithereens. How do we put those together? Commentator Barry Webb writes this about these two chapters. This is a really helpful uh, introduction. He says the everlasting joy of chapter 35 corresponds to the everlasting destruction of the previous one. We, of course, would like to have only one of these realities blessing without curse, salvation without judgment, heaven without hell. And we are always in danger of rewriting the rules. So to speak, uh, to suit our own inclinations. He goes on to say, But the biblical revelation has a stubborn shape to it that resists all manipulation of this kind. It forces us to decision. We must have it as it is or not at all. Accept it. Or make up our own religion. That's the choice. Now I could not have planned this better if I tried. But we can see this happening today. Right in our culture. The most unbelievable illustration we could ever have. It's happening right now. And I want you to watch a clip. And then we're going to talk about it. All right. The shack. Uh, it was published in 2007. It sold over 20 million copies in 10 years. The film was just released, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and it's already grossed over $43 million. It's pretty good. And I was shocked when uh, Outreach, Outreach Magazine, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they came out with a church kit campaign for the shack, and uh, I get it. I, uh, I read the book, I saw the movie, I wept, because <laughs> uh, I'm I'm broken just like you. I've got a little girl. I need to be forgiven, and I need to forgive. I need all the best things that that film and that book offer. But there's a whole lot more that comes along with that package. And that's what's so important for us to talk about today. I I was amazed uh, some other pastors. uh, One guy said it was the most profound, beautiful, and accurate portrayal of God and his relationship with us. Ever produced on film. I will passionately promote and recommend The Shack whenever it's released in theaters. Another guy said it's the most accurate biblical representation of the deity of God I've ever seen. This movie will preach all day long. Hollywood finally got it right. Really? They did? It's a different gospel, and I hope that by the end of the morning, you're going to get that, and it's going to be crystal clear to you, but if you're wondering about how important it is, I'm not picking on the shack. I'm not picking on Paul Young. I'm just saying it's a different gospel. If you haven't read Galatians 1, see what Paul says about those who would promote a different gospel. He says, let them be accursed. So I do want you to understand that's my motivation for speaking to this this morning while we look at these two chapters in Isaiah. I, I, thought, I tried to think of what's an illustration of, of this versus the, the biblical gospel. And I thought, what if I took you up in a plane 20,000 feet in the air? And I said, "Hey, we're going to jump in just a few minutes, and you can take you can take this parachute or you can take a backpack." And here's the deal, the backpack man it slides on easy. It's pretty light. It's kind of comfortable. You'll really enjoy it on the way down. How many of you would jump? Not a person in this room. You'd say, give me the parachute, and you'd be tightening everything up, checking everything twice. You wouldn't care how uncomfortable it is. You just want to make sure that it does what it's supposed to do so that when you land on the ground, you're full of life, not death. So those are the stakes of what we're talking about today. And the way I'm going to come at it is uh, two prophets. One of them is Isaiah. The other is a guy named William Paul Young. And I realize this is a little bit different. We don't normally name people or organizations or churches or whatever. And I do want you to hear, I, I don't, I'm not mean-spirited about this at all. I just care. Jeff and our elders, we just care about the gospel. And so hang with me. Let's look at what these two prophets Have to say. It's interesting. They both have invitations that they offer us. Do you remember back in chapter one when the Lord said through Isaiah, He said, Come, let us reason together. And then right after that, He said, Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll become as white as snow. That was the invitation. Come to me and we'll take care of your sin problem. Here's the invitation that Mac. That's the guy that was on the film. Here's what he gets. A note from God randomly shows up in his mailbox. Mackenzie, it's been a while. I've missed you. I'll be at the shack next weekend if you want to get together. Papa. Sort of an odd name since it's a woman. But nevertheless, that's where we begin in the shack. So we have two messages, and there's a lot of water under the bridge. In Isaiah, we've had 33 chapters of water that we've been reading about. And uh, in the story of the shack, a lot has taken place in Mac's life and in his family, and he is at rock bottom. So let's look at what the prophet Isaiah says first. Let's start there and then see how that compares to the shack. From Isaiah beginning in verse 1, he writes, draw near, O nations, this is the voice of God, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Just put in big parentheses, listen up. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All of the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All of their hosts shall fall and leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. And then down in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. This is the God of the Bible. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. It's pretty rough. It's hard to think about God that way. Relating to humanity that way. And it's really important that we understand what's going on there and that we don't just dismiss it. Which is exactly what the shack does. In the shack, rather than God being one who is taking initiative and engaging his world, God is emasculated. And certainly that can have some gender implications. Obviously it's it's sort of odd that though the Godhead is never once referred to in the feminine in our scriptures, three out of four persons of the Godhead, one of them is wisdom, and then the Father, Son, and the Spirit are women. I don't think that's by mistake. It's not the end of the world, but it's just interesting that that's where we begin with the person of God. Like, why wouldn't you just present God the way the Bible does? That, that would make all the sense in the world. And then God says to Mac, I am not who you think I am. Well, that's a little bit troubling because we all have some idea about what God is like. We have some concept of him. And so here's God saying, you don't really understand me. And, and in one sense, maybe all of us would admit that, that we have some limitations there. But is he at all How he's presented in our Bible, or is he something else? Or is she something else? Like, what is it? The character of God in the shack says, we have limited ourselves out of respect for you. Jesus tells Mac, Papa is as much submitted to me as I am to him. Talking about the interrelationships between the Godhead or Sarah, you to me, or Papa to her. Submission is not about authority, and it's not about obedience. It's about relationships and love and respect. In fact, catch this, we, God says, are submitted to you, the created, in the same way. Where are you going to find that in your Bible? God is real chummy in the shack. And and what's interesting is we don't see that. I mean, think about the transfiguration. What happens to the three guys when they see Jesus in his glorified state? They hit the ground. Job, you remember when he said, man, I'd just love to have a minute with God. I got some questions for him. And he got his shot. And then after God was done talking, what did he do? I have no idea, no words, no understanding. You're God, I'm not. I'm sorry to bother. Right? Isaiah 6, we were there just recently. What did Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the righteous prophet Isaiah in the presence of a holy God, he said, woe is me. I am destroyed. I am undone. I'm actually worthy to be devoted to destruction just like all the nations because I'm sinful and you're holy. And then the Apostle John, just before receiving the book of Revelations, says he fell down like dead. Like none of those guys are sitting back in a comfy chair drinking a cappuccino with God. God they are overwhelmed and overcome by his holiness and that's a good thing because if that is not who God is then how in the world can we trust him to take care of the most important thing in the world and that is our sin Psalm 15:3 says our god is in the heavens He does all that he pleases. He doesn't ask anybody's permission. He doesn't care about your approval or mine. He's God. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times. Things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose in the film Papa says to Mac I've never placed an expectation on you or anyone else and because I have no expectations you never disappoint me never obviously God is far more than disappointed in chapter 34 isn't he He's enraged, he's furious, he's on the war path. And so we gotta ask the question, why? (laughs) Why is God so bent out of shape? That brings us to the second theme of our prophet's messages. And that is the theme of sin. There is nothing more offensive to a holy God who has created all things. sin, And the reason it's so offensive is because at its root is pride, self-will, autonomy. I'm going to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. I'm going to be God. The creator says, no, you're not. You would kill yourself if you were God. And if you don't let me be God... You will kill yourself. Notice in chapter 34, Edom is mentioned in verse uh, 5. It says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That's the capital of Edom. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Edom emerged from the family of Esau, who was Isaac's estranged son, the brother of Jacob. And biblically, Edom represents everything that is contrary to Israel. It's like their arch nemesis throughout all the scriptures. So this isn't just about Edom. They represent all that is opposed to God. And notice that the onslaught of God begins in the heavens. So sin hasn't just disturbed humanity. It's disturbed all of creation. And he's going to start in the heavens. With the stars and the moon and all of the gods that people have created, he starts there and then he works his way down into humanity. All of that is devoted to destruction, which is a sacrifice to God. And if we're going to understand the gospel correctly, we must understand that either we will sacrifice ourselves to no avail or someone will be sacrificed for us. In the shack, sin is sanitized. It's minimized it's really no big deal certainly not worthy of all of the anger and wrath and judgment that we find in chapter 34 Sophia who is lady wisdom in the film explains to Mac that God doesn't condemn anybody the idea of punishment she says is unworthy of Papa He or she says, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. Judgment is not about destruction, but about setting things right. But biblically, things can't be set right without judgment and destruction of sin and death. So it's an essential. Now, for a long time, Uh, After the writing of The Shack, there was a lot of discussion around like, so what does Paul Young really believe? What does he think? What did he mean when he wrote what he wrote in The Shack? And I think people were generally gracious and trying to make room for him. And there are a lot of great themes like forgiveness in the book. So it's not like it's all bad But but there is still this big question, what does he really believe? And you know what? We're in luck. He wrote another book. It's called The Lies We Believe About God, just came out. 28 statements about lies, lies that we have believed about God. Here's what he says about sin. Blind, not depraved, is our condition. It's not our fault. We just can't see very well. Sin is anything that negates or diminishes or misrepresents the truth of who you are, no matter how pretty or ugly that is. Sin is missing the truth of your being. And the truth of your being looks like God. You see, your problem with sin is really you're just not living up to your potential. And that's just a result of your blindness. And if you could just see right, then you'd be all right. And sin would just float away. And you'd be done with it. He argues that sin does not separate us from God. And he bases that teaching on Romans 8, 38 and 39. Uh, here it is. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angel, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation and young would put in there including sin will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is horrific exegesis. It completely ignores the first seven chapters of Romans. Romans all of which establish our guilt (laughs) that sin is common to all of humanity and that the wage of sin is what? Death! Death. Not life, not excuses, not any of that. Death! But He says it doesn't separate us. Let's go back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35. Look in verse 8. There's this way to God called the way of holiness mentioned here. And again, these are, this is the end of all things, right? And so as we come to the conclusion of God wrapping all of history up, in verse 8 it says, And a highway shall be there, and that shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Well, who's the unclean? It's probably people who are still covered with their sin. Don't you think? It shall belong to those who walk in the way. So the the unclean won't be allowed onto the way of holiness. This next phrase says, Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. There's actually, that's a tough phrase to translate. There's two options. I think the one that better fits the context is fools won't find their way onto the way of holiness. Like they're not going to stumble along like in their foolishness and bump into the way of holiness. They're going to miss it altogether because of their heart attitude toward God notice that only the redeemed down in verse 9 walk there and and I'll tell you what this is the best part of the whole passage only the redeemed will walk there those that are redeemed from sin and its consequences now here's what's great about that word if you remember years ago we did a, a study in Ruth and do you remember what Boaz was called In the Hebrew, it was the goel, the kinsman redeemer. And the whole story is built around him coming to Naomi and Ruth and purchasing their redemption, their freedom, restoring them, doing for them what they couldn't do for themselves. He's the kinsman redeemer. And only the redeemed are going to be the ones who find the way of holiness sin does have a consequence and it will keep those who are still indebted to it off the way of holiness but those who are redeemed who have a substitute they will find their way to Zion isn't that beautiful so in Isaiah sin is real it has real consequences but a real solution in the shack it's sanitized and meaningless next theme is the cross and in the shack the cross is distorted that's the place where forgiveness is found but in the shack it's hardly even mentioned there's one point where uh mac is um kind of going off on god uh essentially saying where were you when my little daughter was being abducted and where were you when I was in all my grief and you saw in the film, God says, I never left you. And he said, well, you know, you have a funny thing about uh, leaving people that you supposedly love like your son on the cross. And she holds out her hands like this and she says, I've got the marks to prove it. I was there. Really? So the Father and the Son and the Spirit were all on the cross? Like, where is that? The Father poured out His wrath on the Son, on the cross, so that you and I could be forgiven. The Father couldn't be there, the Father is the judge. Do you see how, if the Father isn't the judge, there is no salvation for us? In the lies we believe, Young believes that the cross originated with human beings, not with God. That he just sort of went with it uh, when humanity created that, uh, that tool of torture. Uh, Young says, God climbed willingly onto our torture device and met us at the deepest and darkest place of our diabolical imprisonment to our own lies. And by submitting once and for all, destroyed its power. Jesus is God's best, given willingly and in opposition to our worst, the cross. So the cross was our idea. And God just played along to show us how much he loved us. So there's a very important thing missing here. It's called substitutionary atonement. And that just means that an innocent sacrifice stands in your place and in mine and receives the full wrath of God that all of us deserved so that we could be forgiven. And it's absent from the shack, which means it's a different gospel. There is no hope in that. Young removes all doubt. He says, nothing, not even the salvation of the entire cosmos could ever justify a horrific torture device called the cross. Without it, there is no hope. Romans 8, 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Colossians 2:13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt there's the kinsman redeemer that stood against all of us with its legal standards this he set aside nailing it that is him the son to the cross 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that's the good news of the gospel. And it's totally absent from the shack. So, raises the question who is saved? Or how might one be saved? And if we go back to Isaiah in uh, chapter 35, God tells Isaiah to tell the people of Judah, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So who's he talking to? We've seen throughout all of our studies so far that there is a remnant, right? There is a group of people within the people of God that God has preserved. And he will keep his promises. Those are the saved And they are not only going to be saved from their sin, but they will literally be saved from all that is in opposition to God. And therefore, God must do as what is described in chapter 34. That is the only way that all things will be made right and new, according to his plan. That's not my plan. It's not your plan. It's not anybody's. He alone decided how this whole thing is going to end up. Now given the content of chapter 34, we can come to the conclusion that not all will be saved. But in the shack, salvation is universalized. Everybody gets in. Which again, it's like, so what's the point of anything? Like why, all, why any talk in our Bible about sin or judgment or wrath or salvation? Saved from what? If everybody gets in, what are you saved from? According to Papa, the question isn't whether all will be saved, but when all will be saved. And here's what Jesus tells Mac in the book, in the film. Those who love me come from every system that exists. I have no desire to make them Christian. (laughs) That was Jesus that supposedly said that. But I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into my brothers and sisters, my beloved. Now listen. Don't miss this. Here is what Young believes about the gospel. The good news is not that Jesus has already opened up the possibility of salvation and you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. These are his words. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life, into his relationship with God the Father and into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote. And whether you believe it or not won't make it any less or more true. Paul Young is a universalist, period. And that is a different gospel. And there is no hope in that because if somebody were to hope in that, then they're lost. They're still dead in their sin, Paul would say. And they're going to be in chapter 34. And they don't have to be. You know, in a strange twist, Paul Young does the very thing he assures everyone that God would never do. He confines the character of God to his own sensibilities. Like he makes God out to be what he thinks God ought to be and then tells us that's what God is like. So Paul Young plays God with God. It's hard to wrap my mind around. But it's so appealing because then we have a God that we can control. And that may feel good and right in the moment. But that's not going to feel great when you breathe your last breath. So in the shack, God is emasculated. Sin is sanitized. The cross is distorted and salvation is universalized. And you know it reminds me of a of a question that's asked in Genesis 3. Remember the serpent when he comes to the woman and he says, "Did God really say that?" I mean, surely you're not going to really die. I mean, that sounds so serious. feels like that's what the shack is asking. Did God really say that? Is that really what God is like? This Isaiah 34 and 35? Absolutely. He is just and he is merciful. He is a good, good father. And worthy of your trust and mine. At the end of the world as we know it, the world will be just as God says it's gonna be. And we are called as a church to cultivate connected followers of Christ, the Savior, with the gospel, the good news that we can be forgiven. That's the kind of church we're gonna be. And may God use us until he finally brings all things to an end. I'm really not quite sure what to ask you to do with all this uh, this morning. Let the bells ring. (laughs) That was perfectly timed. Man, that was awesome. This has been uh, sobering and heavy and uh, difficult, emotional. Um, Like there's nothing more important. Literally, nothing. And so whatever it is that God is calling you to do with this, maybe, maybe it's a change of mind, change of heart, I know this is meant to change how we live. So take take a moment, please, and just ask the Lord, what do I do with who you are, what you're like, what you're doing, and the truth of the gospel in my life?